Good morning, everyone. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 2 Kings chapter 6. We're going to be picking up in, uh, in verse 24 of chapter 6, uh, going all the way through chapter 7. So we have a lot of, uh, of God's Word to cover this morning, so I'm going to go ahead and jump right in uh, to to God's Word. If uh, you're using the Pew Bible, uh, we'll begin on page 312, on 312 of the Pew Bible. So, hear now the Word of the Lord, Second Kings chapter 6, beginning in verse 24. Afterward... Then Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Now, as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, saying, Help, my lord, O king! And he said, if the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you from the threshing floor, from the wine press? And the king asked her, what is your trouble? She answered, this woman said to me, give your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day, I said to her, give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall. And the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. And he said, May God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence. But before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down to him and said, This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? But Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time a shea of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two sheas of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Now, there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. And they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, Let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. 
But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army. So they said to one another, Behold, the kings of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait till the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, We came to the camp of the Syrians. And behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there. Nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents as they were. Then the gatekeepers called out, and it was told within the king's household. And the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking, when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. And one of his servants said, Let some men take five of the remaining horses, seeing that those who are left here will fare like like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Let us send and see. So they took two horsemen, and the king sent them after the army of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. So they went after them as far as the Jordan, and behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king, Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a shea of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two sheas of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Now the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. And the people trampled him in the gate so that he died as the man of God had said when the king came down to him. For when the man of God had said to the king, Two sheas of barley shall be sold for a shekel, and a shea of fine flour for a shekel about this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria, the captain had answered the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he had said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, we come to you and we come to your word this day. And we pray, O Lord, that you would help us to receive your word in faith and love. To lay it up in our hearts and to practice it in our lives. We pray, O Lord, that you would give us great hope as we look out on a world that tells us a message of hopelessness. May we trust your promises, knowing that you have a great salvation for those who look to you and trust in your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we do pray. Amen. 
It was truly a hopeless situation that the citizens of Samaria found themselves in. The text tells us that the king of Syria had mustered his entire army to besiege the city of Samaria, the capital of Israel. Now, last week, we ended our story with verse 23, which said that the Syrians did not come again on raids into Israel. And we might think that verse 24 contradicts this statement. However, verse 23 is indicating a lull in the continual battle that was going on between Israel and Syria. Not a complete cessation of the conflict. Sometime following the events of last week's sermon, an outright war has broken out between these two countries. And this time, Syria doesn't merely send a raiding party into Israel. Rather, they send their whole army and they surround the capital, Samaria. Now, the military tactic of a siege which they are conducting is rather straightforward. You surround the city and you cut off all supplies. When a siege begins, people have resolve, right? We can withstand this assault. We can hold on. Eventually, they'll have to give up and we'll be okay. But after a couple of weeks or months with little to no food, the real power of a siege begins to set in. Hopelessness. A siege is primarily psychological warfare. People begin to lose hope that they will ever see an end to their suffering. The pleas of their children for food begin to wear on them. Their own hunger pains begin to play with their minds. And a growing belief that defeat is inevitable is what ultimately makes a siege successful. An army rarely needs to completely starve a city to death to gain victory by a siege. Rather, it just needs to convince the people that they will starve. And once all hope is gone, victory has been achieved. You see, hope is the belief that in the future, God will bless you, despite what is currently happening. And this hope is based upon God's promises. When you have hope, you look to the Word of God and find there the strength to continue to resist temptation and to endure hardships. When hope is lost, you stop listening to God's Word and you begin listening to lies. You'll never be happy again. You'll never find purpose in your life. Your health is never going to recover. Your weeping is never going to end. There is no morning light after the darkness of this night of sin and pain. You see, the people of Samaria had lost their hope. And some of you this morning find yourself in a similar situation. You've lost hope. You've lost the belief that in the future, God will bring blessing into your life and will ultimately save you from the struggles of this world. But what we find in our text is that when we lose our hope, we must return to the promises of God in faith. 
For His Word never fails, despite what our eyes see in this world. In the midst of a hopeless situation, we can trust in the never-failing Word of God. Now the first thing that we see in our text displayed is what happens when people are hopeless. And what we see is that hopelessness leads to destructive decisions. Several years ago, there was a small town in Maine that was slated to become the home of a new reservoir. And therefore, the citizens of this town, realizing that eventually their town would be completely underwater, stopped taking care of the city altogether. People stopped mowing their lawns, they stopped planting shrubs, they stopped taking care of the city, potholes weren't filled, burnt out streetlights weren't replaced, litter would just collect all over the town. Because there was no hope, there was no reason to make long-term decisions for the good of the town because its future was destruction. And by the time the floodwaters came to the town, the town was truly prepared to be destroyed. And this is what we see reflected in our text. A hopelessness that leads to destructive decisions. Now, the king is out taking a survey of how his citizens are holding up amid the crisis and he's walking along the wall of the city and this woman cries out to him for justice. Listen again to this horrible grievance. She complains to the king, This woman said to me, Give your son that we may eat him today and we'll eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day I said to her, Give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. When there is no hope for deliverance, people will give in to the worst immorality imaginable. Now, we see here this woman's grievance is not even that her son was eaten, but rather her grievance is that she hasn't been allowed to eat somebody else's child. Why? Because she has no hope. When we have no hope, we give in to the worst of immorality, even being willing to sacrifice the next generation that we might have hope for our own lives. Even as we see reflected here, this woman giving up her own child for the hope that she might live another week or another month. Do you think for a second, though, that this woman would have considered such a a horrendous and horrible act if she knew that the siege was about to end in a day or in a week? But there was no hope. There was no end in sight. She had no hope that the future would provide relief. And so she gave in to killing her own child because the future seemed horrible hopeless to her. Not only did hopelessness lead to infanticide, it also led to the king seeking vengeance against the very one who might bring a word of salvation. You see, when we have no hope, we make these destructive decisions and we start lashing out against those who might actually help us. 
When the king of Israel heard of this horrible situation, apparently it was all that he could take. And the text tells us that he turned his anger against the prophet of the Lord, against Elisha. Look at his reaction in verse 31 of our text, chapter 6, verse 31. It says, May God do so to me and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. You see, the king of Israel blames Elisha for this situation. Why? Was it because Elisha had called out the king for his immorality and said that the Lord would judge him? Was it because Elisha, remember from last week, had allowed the raiding party of Syria to return to Syria unharmed? Whatever it was, the king of Israel blames the very one who might bring a word of deliverance. Even though it was his own immorality and leading the people of Israel in pagan worship that led to this horrible situation. Instead of seeking repentance and deliverance, his hopelessness causes him to lash out against the very one who might help him. And the third place that hopelessness leads is to disbelief and anger at God. The king sends this messenger of his, or maybe it's his assassin. And as he stands outside the door of Elisha's house, he declares in verse 33, look there. He says, this trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? When we have no hope, we have no faith in God. As this messenger reasons, if God is the one who has brought this trouble to us, then why should we wait for Him to bring mercy and relief? To put it another way, why should I trust a God who has brought such pain upon me? When we have no hope that the Lord will give us grace in the future, then we stop waiting for the Lord. We stop believing in Him. If you've gone through some hardship in your life, some struggle, a disease or the loss of a loved one, and you struggle and you think, why should I wait for God if God is the very one who caused this to happen? And so your hopelessness leads you to turn from the very God who could bring you salvation. For the Word of God tells us that hope is the anchor of the soul. That means it keeps us from drifting away into these destructive decisions of immorality and of vengeance and of disbelief against God. But when you remove the anchor of hope, then you begin to drift away and cross the waves of sinfulness. Oh, Christian, you must fight against the hopelessness that seeks to overtake you. No matter how desperate the situation that you find yourself in, 
You need to fight to believe the promises of God. The promise that if He is for us, that no one can be against us. The promise that He will work all things together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. We must fight for hope because if we give in to hopelessness, it will lead us to make the most sinful and destructive decisions. So how do we fight this hopelessness? Well, the first thing that we see is that we must believe God's promise of hope. His promise that things will change in the future. Several years ago, an experiment was conducted about hope. They conducted this experiment on rats. And they had two groups of rats. They had the control group and they had the test group. Anybody who is a scientist know you always need to have the control group. And what they did with the test group was they put them into a tube that had water in it, but there was no way for them to escape. And they let them swim there for a few minutes and then they took them out. And then they would put them back in and let them swim for a while longer and took them out until they were trained to believe that they would be saved from drowning. Now, after they had been trained, they took both groups of rats, those who had not been trained and those who had been trained, and they put them in these tubes of water. And those who had not been trained within an hour had all drowned. They gave up. They looked around. There's no way out. And so they gave up. But those who had been trained to hope, every single one of them remained alive 24 hours later. Why? Because they looked around and even though they couldn't find any way out, they believed that they would be saved. Now, humans are somewhat different than rats, I think. But the fact remains, when we believe in the future of salvation, we will have the power to continue in a situation that seems hopeless. The people of Samaria were given a great word of hope for a future salvation. Look at verse 1 of chapter 7. Here, Elisha, the prophet of God, gives a word of hope. He says, hear the word of the Lord. Listen to this, right? Listen to this. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow, about this time, a shea of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two sheas of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. What does this promise mean? Well, it means that in less than 24 hours, the Lord is going to bring relief from this siege. Salvation is coming. Yes, right now you will pay five shekels for, I don't know what a calf of dove's dung is, but it doesn't sound very delectable. And people were willing to spend five shekels on that. But in 24 hours from now, you're going to be able to buy fine flour at one-fifth of the cost. 
they were called to accept that God was about to do something that was unthinkable. You see, the way that we fight against hopelessness is to believe the promise of God even when His promise seems unbelievable. The messenger of the king was not willing to believe this. He was not willing to have hope amid a hopeless situation. And because of his disbelief, he is cursed to see the relief, but not to taste it. This is what the Lord calls us to amid a hopeless situation. He calls us to believe his promise of salvation, even when we can't understand how it will come about. We're not called upon to provide for ourselves bread. We're not called upon to bring to ourselves relief and defeat of our enemies. Rather, we are called upon to believe the word of deliverance, to believe the word of God. For God has proven his salvation to his people over and over again. He has delivered his people through Moses. He has delivered his people through Joshua. He has delivered his people through the judges and through the kings throughout history. And he will deliver his people yet again. And to us who have been given an even greater assurance that the Lord will save us. For he has given to us his son Jesus Christ. And in Him, all the promises of God are yes and amen. For we live on this side of the cross where the blood of Jesus was shed so that we might be forgiven of our sins. We live on this side of the cross where Christ went into the grave and on the third day rose again and defeated sin and death forever. When we are amid a hopeless situation, we must trust God's promise that He will truly deliver us. You see, the people of Samaria are in a completely hopeless situation. And yet, they've been given a promise that salvation will come. Now, the situation, or the perspective rather, shifts. And it goes from this salvation that is promised to a salvation that has been achieved. Much could be said about what happens next in our text, but let's just summarize. We have these four lepers outside the city gates. They were ceremonially unclean, and so they would have had to live outside of the city. And they reason, you know, it will be better for us to defect to the Syrians for a hope that they might feed us than it would be for us just to stick around here and to starve to death. Because if we go into Samaria, there isn't any food there. If we stay here, there's no food here. Maybe we'll go to the Syrians and they'll give us food. If they don't, they'll kill us and at least it will be over with quickly. So they take off to the camp of the Syrians. But when they arrive, the camp is completely empty. Now, I believe that the Syrians were probably on edge because of all that they had heard about what had happened the last time there was a raiding party sent into Israel. They knew that the God of Israel was not to be messed with. And the Lord, just with the sound of chariots, scares this army away. So often when we find ourselves in a hopeless situation, our enemies are not as unbeatable as we might imagine, yet... No no matter how strong they are, 
they are no stronger than the Lord. Now, these four lepers begin feasting. Then they decide, hey, you know what? Let's take some of this gold and this silver and these clothes and take them away and put them into our savings account for a, for a rainy day. Let's make sure that we get nice and full on all of this food. But then they say to each other in verse 9, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. We live in a world of people who are filled with hopelessness. But we, we have a salvation that has been achieved. There is deliverance from the pain and the hardship of this world. And we are called upon to share the truth that despite the pain that you are feeling, that there is a day of good news coming. An unsettling trend is occurring among young people, particularly teenagers in the United States. Since 2007, the rate of suicide among teenagers has been on the steady incline. And there has been a marked uptick since the onset of COVID. Now, there's not a whole lot of direct answers to why suicide is on such a rapid upswing. But what officials do know is that suicide usually is preceded by feelings of hopelessness. This feeling that there is no deliverance, that there is no escape, that there is no future for me. Teenagers are looking out on the world and they see a world in which there is only struggle, there is only hardship, there is no blessing. And future for them. And so they make the worst and most destructive decision they can. They end their lives. But we Christians, we have a message of hope. We have the light of salvation to shine into the dark world. For we do not just have a promise of salvation, that salvation might come about, but we have a message of salvation that has been achieved. For in Christ Jesus, the enemy has been defeated and we have been freed. In Christ Jesus, we have the forgiveness of sins. Jesus says to his people who need a word of hope in the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. How do we overcome the hopelessness of this world? We must proclaim the gospel of salvation that has been achieved in Christ Jesus. We must must proclaim the message of hope. You see, we who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are like these four lepers who have gone out and we have tasted and we have seen and we've received the richest of blessings in Jesus Christ. But if we don't go forth from this place into the world and tell the hopeless world about the hope of Christ, then even as the lepers reasoned, we are doing wrong. Because today is not a day of hopelessness, but because of what Christ has accomplished, today is a day of good news. And therefore, 
to have hope in this world, we need to proclaim the Gospel. And sometimes we need to proclaim it to ourselves. We need to preach this to a dying world, but we also need to preach it to our souls. As we see reflected in Psalm 42, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation. If we would have hope in this world, we must continue to tell our soul of the salvation achieved. Now, this salvation achieved, as it is proclaimed, is not always quickly accepted by the world. It seems a little bit too good to believe. It kind of reminds me of when kids first encounter a new food. Those of you who have children or grandchildren, I know, have experienced this before. Children treat new foods with great suspicion no matter how parents try to sell it to them. They look at this food from every angle. They ask, what's in it? They sniff it. Finally, they'll take a microscopic bit of it and touch it to the end of their tongue. I'm not sure about that. They have this feeling that we're trying to trick them into eating something disgusting or horrible. Even though what we're trying to give them is good, they're like, ah, I've never seen that before. I don't think I can trust that. Now, when our four lepers returned to the city of Samaria, they proclaimed the good news of salvation, but the people don't believe it. It's too good to be true. The king thinks it is a trap. Earlier we saw that we are to believe the promise of God's deliverance with faith, but here we see that the message of salvation, the proclamation of it is being tested. Now is that wrong? Well, not necessarily. You see, to grow in our hope, it is good for us to test the message and the promise of hope. There's a difference between testing God and testing the proclamation of a promise. We have no right to test God. If God proclaims that He will save, then we are called upon to believe it. And yet, we are not called upon to the same type of belief in the proclamations of men. We are to test these. In the book of Acts, the Bereans were commended because when they hear the message of salvation in Jesus Christ, what do they do? Well, they search the Scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was actually true. Paul proclaimed the message of salvation, but then they went to the Word of God to see if it was a true message. The Apostle John tells us in 1 John chapter 4, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Christian, we live in a world that is hopeless. But there are many false prophets who proclaim false hopes. 
There are people who will speak in the name of Christ and give a false message of salvation. One that promises earthly reward. One that promises salvation based upon works or deeds. One that promises that all your troubles will be gone if you merely have enough faith. And the world proclaims many gospels. Even if they are evacuated from Christ and the message of the gospel... The world has many Gospels to proclaim to you. Oh, trust in yourself. If you'll just trust in yourself, then things will get better. Yes, you just need to follow the desires and urges within, and then you can become your true, authentic self. And yet, these will only lead to further destruction. We must test the messages of hope that are proclaimed in this world And we must test them against the promises of God's Word. We must encourage those who don't have hope to test the message of salvation going to the Word of God and seeing that it is true. For the deliverance of God is open for all to see. We need to continually go to God's Word, test our hope, and see what He has proclaimed. Hope. It's the battle to believe God's promises that in the future He will save us. G.K. Chesterton put it this way, Hope means hoping when things are hopeless or it is no virtue at all. As long as matters are really hopeful, hope is merely flattery or platitude. It is only when everything is hopeless That hope begins to be a strength. You see, it's only when things are at their worst. When it seems that there is no hope going forward, that your hope is truly tested. And you see, do you really believe the promise of the gospel? Do you really believe in the salvation of Christ? Or has it been a mere platitude that you're willing to repeat on Sunday mornings because everything is going well for you at that time? Israel was called the hope and the word of God when the situation was hopeless. But as the passage ends, we see that all those who hope in the Word of God will not be disappointed. Look down at verse 16. It says, Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a shea of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two sheas of barley for a shekel, according to the word of of the Lord. In our passage, this phrase, this promise is repeated three times. Three times the Word of God says, this is going to happen. It's going to happen. In less than 24 hours, the whole situation is going to change. I know you do not see. You have no idea how this is going to happen. But trust me. Trust my Word. Yes, it is hopeless now. But have hope in the proclamation of salvation. For I have achieved it. And I don't know what hopeless situation you are looking at right now. Christian. I don't know what your future looks like. What your worries and your doubts and your struggles are. I don't know the enemy that is at your gate that is starving you of your hope. 
But the Word of God is proclaiming to you over and over and over again, salvation has been achieved in Jesus Christ. And even if the hopelessness has led to death itself, Jesus Christ has overcome death. For He went into the grave and on the third day He rose again so that all who hope in Him will be saved. The promise of salvation was given. But we also must note that one who did not hope in the Word of God did not receive the blessing. Verses 19 through 20. The captain had answered the man of God, if the Lord Himself should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be, right? Even God cannot overcome this situation. And He had said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to Him, for the people trampled Him, in the gate, and he died. Christian, our hope is in the resurrection to life everlasting. But the Word of God teaches us that it will not just be the righteous who are raised on that day, but the righteous and the unrighteous. And the unrighteous who are unwilling to submit to the Word of God in faith and believe will see the salvation of our God, but they will not taste it. For they were unwilling to submit to the Word of God and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this day, you are called upon to place your full faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ that no matter what you're facing today, the salvation that He has won is the salvation that you must trust in. Christian, when life seems hopeless, when you see no way that the Lord could save you, it is then that hope truly begins. It is when you are surrounded by the darkness of doubt and sin and worry and pain. There is when hope begins. Not hope in the vain schemes of men, but rather hope in the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. For Christ in us is the hope of glory. And all who are in Him will be raised to life and life everlasting. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, we come to You. We pray, O Lord, that You would give to us the grace that we might have faith in Your Word of promise. That we might not be like the captain who looked at the world and said there's no way that even God could accomplish this salvation. Let us be like those who believed and went and received a great blessing. We pray, O God, for Your people this day as they are facing hardship. Oh, would they continue, Lord, in their faith in Your Son, Jesus Christ. And if there is any here this day that do not know You, O God, would they hear Your Word And would they trust unto the salvation of their souls in Christ Jesus alone. It's in His name that we do pray. Amen.